the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today about how tough it is for people who return from jail or prison to find the new life and opportunities that they need. We're going to talk with a professor who studied the issue and published a book about the dynamics that hold returning citizens back, and with a former inmate who served nearly three decades for a crime he didn't even commit. Both are going to give us a clearer picture of how punishment plays out forever for those who return from incarceration. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have decided to join us. Stories about crime in our society usually go something like this there's an arrest, there's a trial, there's a sentencing if the offender is found guilty, and then off to jail or prison. But for some 90%, of those offenders, that is nowhere near where the story ends. At some point, they get to come back to society, out of prison or out of jail, back to the place where they likely committed their crime. They come back home. And so often, they come back to a life that is, well, not just there anymore. Family and friends have sometimes moved on, and reintegration with them is a long-term challenge. Work? Well, what work might you be qualified for after prison? And what employer might be willing to, quote, take a chance on a returning citizen? And even basic life-critical issues, how to get an ID, where to live, how to navigate the world. All of these things are 10 times harder than they were before incarceration. And add this to the list of problems. That renewal you're promised after incarceration, the idea that you've served your time and deserve that second chance that we always talk about in this country, it doesn't really materialize. You're a criminal. You're a returning offender, and that tag follows you everywhere. Think for a second about how that works just right here in the state of Michigan. We've got hundreds of laws on the books that prevent returning citizens from rebuilding a normal life for themselves. The hyper-punitive nature of our system punishes even after a sentence is served. And so these legal hurdles perpetuate more violence, they shorten lives, and increase the chance that someone who is released from prison will probably go back, which of course creates more financial and social costs for all of us. We want to talk today about that narrative 
for returning citizens, the help they can't get, the opportunities that aren't there, the punishment they suffer long after they've served their time. And let's start this conversation with a stat that signals just how critical this issue is for us here in Southeast Michigan. In Detroit, the city where I live, the city where I'm raising a family, one in every three African-American males has been to jail or prison and faces these hurdles. One in three. Professor Reuben Miller followed the lives of many people as they have struggled to return home from prison in his new book, Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. I want to welcome him to Detroit today. Professor Miller, it is really great to have you here. Glad to, glad to join you this morning. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Ronald Simpson Bay. He was in prison for nearly three decades for a crime he did not even commit. And he spends his time now helping other people try to return to a normal life after being incarcerated. Ronald Simpson Bay, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So, Professor Miller, I'm going to start with you. Uh, when people leave prison, there is this idea, I think, in many of our heads that they have served their time and that they will be welcomed back home and given a chance to rebuild their lives. But as I said in the open, so often that doesn't happen. There are lots of hurdles that prevent uh, that return to a normal life. You chronicle these stories uh, in your book. Tell us about what those hurdles are and why they exist. Thanks so much for the question. So across the country, there's something called the National Inventory for the Collateral Consequences of Criminal Conviction. It was first put together uh, by the American Bar Association. Uh, and what it does is it counts the number of laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that target people with criminal records. And so what this means is that these are laws specifically for people who have a record uh, that prevent them from accessing things like jobs or housing or, uh, or, or regulate, or maybe the laws might regulate time with their families. And what they did was they counted them across every state and they found that there were over 44,000, 44,000 laws, policies, and administrative sanctions that target people with criminal record. Wow. Uh, this includes over 19,000 employment regulation, 19,000. In the state of Michigan, in, in, in your state, there, there are over 600 of these laws, policies, and administrative sanctions, something like 689 the last time I looked. Uh, and this included about 315 that prevent people from accessing full employment. This is in the state of Michigan. It's one state. So multiply that times 50. And that's the that's the national, that's the national view. But on top of this legal uh, infrastructure that we've built that constrain people from being able to do things like find work or live in the home uh, with their children. So for example, if there's a foster child or if a child is adopted, someone with a violent felony, for example, this is over half the prison, by the way, mm -hmm. um, wouldn't be able to live there. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the legal. There's also the extra legal. There's the stigma of, of, of the criminal record that, 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 that follows people. So, so the presumption is that people who've been to jail or prison will engage uh, in, in, in not just criminal, but violent criminal activity much later. Uh, and, and so and so we're afraid that society has been taught to be afraid of people who've committed crimes. And so we exclude people 
uh, as a matter of course, from accessing things like housing or even the social services that they might need. So uh, I, I should uh, fill our audience in on some of your background, Professor Miller. You're an associate professor in the University of Chicago Crown Family School and a research professor at the American Bar Foundation. A lot of your work has taken place in in the Chicago uh, area. So I, I want to have you talk just a little about your personal experience with prisons and jails uh, during the time that you were a chaplain at Chicago's Cook County Jail. Uh, tell us why you decided to do that and tell us what you saw about these issues that you're talking about when you were interacting with uh, incarcerated citizens that way. Yeah, that's how I cut my teeth. <laughs> you know, so I, I began this work as a volunteer chaplain at the Cook County Jail. I was really motivated by a scripture. I'm a religious guy, you know, and uh, there's, a, there's a scripture that says, um, you know, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? And when I was sick and in prison, this is in my faith tradition, uh, did, you, did, did you visit me? And, uh, and that, that really st- struck me. And, and so I talked to the religious leaders and, and you know, my, my pastor at my church, and I asked her if um, we had anything happening in jails and prisons, and we didn't. And so she told me to go and find a way to get involved. And so I found a, 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 what's called a parachurch organization or, or an organization that's outside of the church that, that is a religious organization that volunteered to, to, to work with men and women inside jails and prisons. And so I, I started going and, and volunteering as a, as a chaplain with an organization in, in Chicago uh, inside the Cook County Jail, which at the time um, was the largest single site jail facility in the country. In fact, it still is. At the time, there was a, 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 a count. There were something like 10,000 people who were in that jail on, on, on any given day. Uh, and so it was one of the largest jails in the country, one of the busiest courtrooms for sure in the country. And and while I was there, you know, just sort of doing religious volunteer stuff, delivering death notices, meeting with people to help them uh, grieve the loss of, for example, loved ones who died while they were on the inside. And the jail is an interesting place because at least in Cook County, it's it's kind of a way station. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's a spot for people who are on their way somewhere else. It's a spot for people who will never be charged with anything. Their charges will be dropped and they'll be sent away. It's a spot for people who are only going to do time in the jail. And it's also a spot for people who are coming out of prison and are being processed on their way out. At least that's the way it worked in Cook County while I was there. And so anyway, all these folks are there for varied amounts of time, from a year to many years uh, uh, inside this jail. And and, I, and while I was meeting with folks, I started seeing my neighbors. <laughs> you know, I started seeing <laughs> people I knew, you know, brothers and sisters who, I, who I'd see at the store. And this is unsurprising uh, to people who are in this line of work uh, because I was born poor and black after 1972. This is the year that mass incarceration begins in earnest. And because I came from a residentially segregated neighborhood in Chicago, uh, uh, where where people are often arrested from the stat that you read in Detroit reads the same in Chicago and L.A. and New York and you know in every major uh, metropolitan area for sure and so that means because of the concentration of 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 not just crime but arrest uh, in a city like Detroit that means that 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 most black people who are born poor in a racially segregated neighborhood know people who've been to jail or prison quite a bit mm-hmm. well while I'm doing this work. This leads me to, you know, be interested in 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 mass incarceration in an interesting way because I'm confronted with the realities of, uh, you know, a, a jail where 80 percent of the people in there are, look like me, come from neighborhoods like I came from, and in fact, many of which are my neighbors. 
Uh, and so, and so, and so I went to, I became, I decided to go to social work school to become a better chaplain. I wanted to be a clinician and then eventually got a PhD in sociology to study mass incarceration, started doing the research that, that, that eventually becomes the book that we're talking about now called Halfway Home. Uh, but while I'm doing the research for this book, you asked about my family, my brother, uh, who, who had been arrested before, uh, was arrested again and was incarcerated and was doing time. Uh, and so during the course of me writing the book, uh, in fact, during the course of my research in Michigan jails and prisons, I worked at the University of Michigan for a few years and uh, uh, worked in Detroit and Ypsilanti and other areas. That's how I met Ronald. Uh, uh, during the course of that work, he was incarcerated in Michigan prisons. Uh, and, so, and, so, and so I understand uh, this problem from the perspective of a family member who's caring for a loved one, but also from the perspective of a researcher and also the, from the perspective of a volunteer. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply interested and care about this group from an ethical position, but also from a personal one. Hmm. Hmm. So I want to have you talk just a little about the book, Halfway Home, uh, which has gotten, uh, it's gotten a lot of, 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 of praise from people who we have talked to here before uh, on, on the program. But, but familiarize our listeners just a little bit um, with the stories that you that you tell here and what they tell us about yeah. uh, this this issue. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm I'm grateful that the book has been positively reviewed. I'm, I'm very happy that that it's being taken up and that people um, are getting something out of it. Yeah, I followed um, hundreds of men and women through uh, American jails and prisons, uh, especially uh, in the state of Michigan. It's where I met my dear brother Ronald Simpson Bay, who's on the call, mm-hmm. uh, who worked with me. Uh, to, 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 to follow folks. And anyway, what I do is called ethnography. I'm a, I follow people. I, I do what they do. I try to understand their lives from my body. So um, I, I did uh, observational research inside drug treatment programs and homeless shelters. I follow people on the day of their release uh, from Michigan jails and prisons for about two years. And what I did was I went where they went. I did what they did. Uh, uh, and I, I followed them. I met their families. I spent time uh, with their children, their mothers, their grandmothers. Um, and then we also did interviews, a big interview project. And Ronald was 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 instrumental uh, in that project. But we sat down with brothers and sisters who were getting out on the day of their release. And we followed them over time. But we also sat down with the people who they said were most important to them. And this was often big sisters, girlfriends, grandmothers, wives, parents, and children. And we tried to understand what life was like for them when they came home mm-hmm. to get our head around the way that mass incarceration has fundamentally changed what, what I write about is the social life of the city. And so a city like Detroit just looks and feels different after about 1972. It's just, we've just, we've just inaugurated a different world. Once we engaged in, in this era where we started arresting one in three black American men, once we engaged uh, in this in this era where, 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 where we've prosecuted people at such a rate that 19.6 million people now have a felony record in this country. <laughs> you know, once, once, once we engaged in that, mm-hmm. everything looks different. And because of the law and policy, because of the legal uh, infrastructure that we've built to keep ourselves safe, what we end up doing is punishing entire families. And so mothers uh, who want to help their, their loved one, you know, and, and allows them a couch to sleep on, for example, they're being evicted because we have laws on the books that say Landlords can evict people who let folks with criminal records so much as visit their homes. Right. And they do. And, and so the, the, the book tells the story of the transformation of the city 
It tells the story of how mass incarceration has changed social lives. It tells the story of how mass incarceration has changed family life in the American city in this current age. But it also tells my story. You know, I write about what it means to care for and visit uh, and, and support my brother while I'm following uh, many brothers and sisters who are doing the same. Yeah, yeah. So Ronald Simpson Bay, I think that's a great segue to having you talk about your story, your experience. Uh, as I said in the open, uh, you were in prison for 27 years for a crime that you didn't commit. Um, that in and of itself, in and of itself, is just a mind-blowing um, truth. Uh, but I, I really want to have you talk about the difficulty coming back to the world after that 27 years. Um, the, just the idea of rebuilding a life that, in your case, was literally stolen from you. Um, uh, when you get home, what is the, I guess, what is what does the world even look like after 27 years uh, away? Wow, thank, great question. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. I'm glad to be proud of it. Hello, Ruben. Good to be with you, my friend. <laughs> And coming home after 27 years, um, that is, like you say, it's a mind-blowing prospect. I went to prison in 1985, and I was released in 2012. And I often tell people when I do public speaking that it felt like, I felt like Fred Flintstone on the set of the Jetsons when I stepped out of prison. Wow. The wow. world had, had totally changed. I mean, it had, and it had literally changed that drastically. You know, I went in, and when I got out, cars were talking, and, and they keyless entry, and, and things I had never even imagined while I was in prison. There was no such thing as cell phones, desktop computers. The in, there was no internet, no Google. None of that stuff existed prior to me going to prison. So when I got out, learning all this new technology was was a daunting task. And and the, the reacclimation process is is still ongoing for me. I've been home it'd be ten years in June, and I still haven't reconnected with one of my daughters. I have four children and three, three of my daughters and my middle daughter, she and I, we still aren't, you know, we still haven't reconnected. She deals with the trauma of abandonment issues of me going to prison and we just haven't been able to bridge that gap. Mm. So it's still an ongoing process for me. Um, there are total, I mean, even though my conviction was overturned, I still face the same barriers as those that, that have convictions. Uh, and I had even less uh, support services because if you get out on parole, you have, you know, just, there's somewhat of a support system for people on parole. They have to go report. They have to, they have things that they can go get access to homes and, and pay and money and what have you. I got out to nothing. I had to rely on, on the um, support system that I built while I was in prison. And what was that support system like? How, how, how did you build the support system from prison? But I, I was proactive. When I was in prison, I was an activist and advocated when I was inside of prison. And I advocated for the civil rights of people incarcerated, the conditions of confinement. I was a named plaintiff on the largest class action in Michigan prison history called Kane versus MDOC. So I was kind of, I was kind of effective and used to actually being proactive and advocating for myself. So what I did, I was involved in different types of campaigns in the community. So I connected with people and organizations that were doing activist work in the community, political work. I remained connected to my family. My mother was still alive. She's still alive today. So my mother and my brothers and sisters, I'm the eldest of five children. They were all, you know, instrumental in helping me come back to society. Hmm. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Reuben Miller and Ronald Simpson Bay uh, about returning citizens and the way that we welcome them back or don't welcome them back into our world. We want to get going on the phones as well. Give us a call and let us know what you think about the way we treat returning citizens uh, in this country. Do you know someone who has been in jail or in prison? Are they family members or friends or co-workers or neighbors? Tell us what that was like. Tell us what the process looks like for welcoming somebody back. Uh, from incarceration. Also, we'd love to hear from you if you are somebody who has been incarcerated. Uh, Do you have questions about how the system works? We would love to hear your story about coming back home after being in jail or prison for for a time. How supportive do you feel uh, society was? How much help was there out there for you? Uh, when you got back home. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about uh, why it's so hard to return to normal life after incarceration. And we've got two really great guests here discussing it with us. Professor Ruben Miller is author of Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. He is an associate professor in the University of Chicago Crown Family School and a research professor at the American Bar Foundation. Uh, Also with us is Ronald Simpson Bay, a former prison inmate and executive vice president of Just Leadership USA, which is an organization that advocates for inmates and is trying to decarcerate America. We want to hear from you uh, during this conversation as well. Uh, Give us a call and let us know what uh, this looks like in your world. If you live here in the city of Detroit, it's likely that you know somebody who has been in jail or in prison. One in three African-American males in our city uh, has been in jail or in prison. It's almost inescapable as an issue uh, if you live here. Give us a call and tell us what that's like. Uh, Do you have family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors who have been in jail or prison and have had a hard time when they come back, finding a new life, rebuilding the life that they lost when they were incarcerated. Tell us what their struggles look like. Uh, Tell us what it was like for them to try to leave prison and reintegrate into society. Of course, we also want to hear from you. If you're somebody who has been incarcerated, Let us know what the road home looked like. How hard was it? How hard is it? Uh, How much support was there for you uh, when you walked out of uh, the prison gates and and came back to your neighborhood, tried to come back to your family? Were there barriers 
that uh, that the law put in front of you uh, in order to, to to make a new life for yourself. Um, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, before we get to listeners, uh, Ronald, uh, I know that when you met uh, Ruben Miller, you were launching the Good Neighbor Project, and now you run uh, Just Leadership USA. I, I would love to have you talk about uh, those organizations, what you do, and and the impact that they're having on this rocky road to to, the, to return to life for people who leave prison. Thank you. That's a great question. Great question. When I when I met Professor Miller, I was working at an organization in Ann Arbor called American Friends Service Committee. They are, they're an international organization, mm-hmm. social justice organization. And they have a Michigan chapter, a branch committed to uh, criminal justice in Michigan prisons. And I was, a pro- I was a program associate there, and the director asked me to build this pro- project called the Good Neighbor Project. That's what we named it. And it was actually, it was, it was developed as a co-mentorship between people serving life and long indeterminate sentences in Michigan prisons and the community, we would have one-on-one relationships similar to a pen pal, but it was like pen pal on steroids because it was it was like it was moderated conversations and questions between the, uh, the participants and the people in the community. And it just so happened the director of American Friends Service Committee, Natalie Holbrook, introduced me to Ruben, and I asked him to serve on my board of directors to help guide me in this process, and he did. And he and I developed a lifelong friendship after that after that initial meeting. We've worked with each other ever since. Matter of fact, he hired me as a research assistant uh, for the, um, the basis for the, his book, Halfway Home. So that was a, that was a very interesting process. And the Good Neighbor Project is still running, even though I'm not there any any longer. We have several hundred people that's connected to it. It's produced some good results. The, the intention of the Good Neighbor Project was to change hearts and minds of people in the community about those who we are incarcerated, mm-hmm. because the media has pre- portrayed incarcerated people as you know the boogeyman, the worst of the worst, and these are just everyday people who made bad choices and trying to get their lives back together. Yeah. So that project took on a life of itself. And in 2015, uh, Just Leadership USA uh, uh, launches an initial uh, inaugural cohort in um, New York City. And Just Leadership USA is the only national organization that's founded and run by formerly incarcerated, directly impacted people. Our motto is those closer to the problem are closer to the solution, but furthest away from resources, opportunity, and power to do anything about it. So at Just Leadership, we center the voices of those who have been directly impacted by the criminal legal system to be advocates for themselves, advocates in their communities, and to help drive this whole conversation around criminal justice reform in America and decarcerating America. Because we believe that those who are directly impacted by the system should be those having conversations around how to change it. So I'm I'm definitely honored to be part of that process. Yeah. So I, I also want to give you a chance to talk about how personally this issue affects you. Not only are you somebody who who spent 27 years in prison for a crime uh, you didn't commit, um, you also have a son who was shot and killed, and you advocated for leniency for your son's killer. I would love to have you. Talk about what gives you the courage and the conviction to, to, to do something like that. 
Well, it, it, the the situation with my son and uh, was in 2000. Well, actually, it happened on Father's Day in 2001. I was in the prison there in, in uh, Lapeer, Michigan, waiting for my children to come visit because I talked to my son that morning. He was 21. He said, "Hey, Dad, I'm coming to visit. Me and the girls are coming up." So. I was waiting at the prison for them to visit. They never showed. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock came, and I started calling around trying to locate my children. And I couldn't find anybody, which was strange. I have a pretty good-sized family in Flint, Michigan. But I called my ex-mother-in-law of all people. Hey, Mom, have you seen the kids? They're supposed to come visit. She said, you haven't heard? I said, no, what's going on? She said, little Ronnie's been shot and killed. I'm like, what? She said, yeah, they're all out of the hospital. He's been shot, and, and, and they're with him. And it, it, it floored me. I couldn't, I mean, I can't even begin to understand, I mean, to tell you the impact that they had on me that then and even now. But at the time it happened, I had been in prison like 16 years or so, and I had been uh, a high-profile person in the prison. I ran a lot of organizations. I was a religious leader inside the prison. And so it came time for me to apply all the things I had told people when they're dealing with their own trauma and hardships over the years to apply it to myself. Because for me, the worst thing I could be is a hypocrite. So I always try to be true to my word. So I internalized my own, you know, teachings and lessons and, and suggestions I had given to people over the years. And I actually advocated for this child. It was a 14 year old child that killed my son. Wow. Wow. And I felt like it would serve no useful purpose to have that child serve life in prison in Michigan prison for the worst mistake and worst thing he had done in his life. It wasn't going to bring my son back. It wasn't going to do anything but further erode the fabric of our society and destroy his home as well. So I wanted to have that child have a second chance in life, and I advocated for him to do so. And what was the what was the decision about that? Yeah, the court ended up giving him. He was tried as a juvenile instead of as an, as an adult, and that's what I was advocating for mm-hmm. for him to be tried as a juvenile. He actually did seven years. They gave him what's called a blended sentence. He served seven years. And once he turned 21, he was reviewed to see what kind of progress he had made, whether or not they were going to adjudicate him for adult incarceration or release him. And they did release him after the seventh year. He had turned 21. Wow. Wow. Uh, That's an incredible, incredible story. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone's call. And tell us what experience you have with uh, returning citizens, uh, people who... Uh, have been incarcerated and are released and need to rebuild their lives back here in our community. As someone in your family, someone in your friend circle, someone in your neighborhood, uh, one of those people. Uh, are you one of those people? Call and tell us about the challenges and the hurdles that stand in your way of of moving past uh, that, that time in your life. Um, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. Let's start today with uh, Elena in Detroit. Elena, Hi. what's on your mind? Good morning. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to um, talk about some current issues with regard to uh, wrongful convictions and wrongful arrests on the part of the Detroit police, which is really contributing to these extremely high numbers mm-hmm. of people being caught up in the system. Whether they're convicted or not, people are being arrested when they get pulled over and there's somebody in the car that has a gun. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets arrested. And also the fact that there are police officers right now involved in Detroit in wrongful convictions. And if one person went to prison wrongly on the word of a police officer in Detroit, then maybe all of their cases should be reopened. Because if one person has been wrongfully convicted and the prosecutor's office and the police department has been complicit in it, perhaps they all need to be open. That's what I wanted to say. Thank yeah. you. Uh, Elena, I really appreciate the call and, and especially the, the, the data points about 
stuff that's going on right now, uh, the, the the gun sweeps that you're talking about with Detroit police are are a really concerning, I think, uh, approach to to policing the streets. Uh, Professor Miller, this is this is in your sweet spot of things that you're thinking about and talking about. It is this sort of infrastructure of law that errs on the side of uh, incarceration in the first place, but then, of course, uh, makes it really difficult afterward uh, to, 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 to get back to some sort of normalcy. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what we talk about when we talk about the carceral state and, and the approach that, uh, that our laws have taken, as you point out, since the early 70s, to really create that carceral state. Uh, and, you know, Elena didn't say this, but I know she was thinking about it. This falls much more heavily on African Americans than it does uh, on, on other people. And we don't need to look any further than the city of Detroit to, to understand that. That's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, D- Detroit is um, a great example um, and, and horrifyingly unexceptional. Uh, uh, you know, the number of wrongful convictions that we've seen coming out of the city of Detroit um, mirror the number of wrongful convictions we, we see coming out of every major uh, police station across the country. And, and, and a part of, the, of what we've done is, is, is we've decided to legislate from a place of fear. And so we've given police officers, for example, great impunity to do as they will, to, 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 to shake down people, to, to harm people. Uh, uh, and there are protections in place, and there, there's no automatic review. And in very few cases, are there independent, um, community-based review boards, for example, to think about things like police misconduct? Well, that's 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 one part of the problem, uh, and it's a huge part of the problem, and it's it's it's, it's important to think about. This the, the larger infrastructure of the carceral state is 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 yet another um, part of the problem, and also a huge part of the problem. You know what we've decided to do is we've decided to legislate from this place of fear, where we start writing laws and policies um, that criminalize uh, everyday behavior. So, for example, crossing state lines if you're not just on probation or parole, uh, but if, but if but if you've been arrested and you're waiting on a case to be heard, mm-hmm. it seems like it makes sense. Uh, for you to not be able to cross state lines, uh, but but if you've gotten out of jail or prison, let's say on the on the other side of this thing, it doesn't make so much sense for you to not be able to cross state lines. Association with people uh, with so-called known offenders is a is is, is a crime. Uh, th- this is the bedrock of American democracy: the idea of association, the idea that an organization like Just Leadership USA, for example, or All of Us and None in California, for example, or 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 um, the Nation Outside back in Michigan, for example, that people who have like experience would get together uh, and, and and change the, the the problems that they see. This is this is the bedrock of the democratic project. But we've decided that it should be considered illegal um, for people with who are on probation or parole, people who just got out of prison, for, for, from congregating with one another because we're afraid. We're afraid that they're going to hatch some wild criminal scheme or something like that. Because we're afraid of these people, we've written thousands of laws and policies that make their lives precarious. We sever them from the labor market. We sever them. We sever their family ties. We we don't allow them to civically participate in ways that most people find meaningful. But any criminologist worth their salt will tell you that unemployment, uh, uh, frayed family ties, and, 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 and limited civic engagement leads to more crime and not less. This is the problem with the carceral state that we've erected. Mm-hmm. 
out of fear, we've written laws to keep ourselves safe. But what we've done is we've made ourselves less safe. We've created the conditions that breed crime through our law and policy because we're afraid of crime. It's, 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 it's a really silly circumstance that we've put ourselves in. Yeah. I want to read a couple of social media comments and then get back uh, to the phones. Big Neo says the main reason is so difficult is because most societies, especially America, are not set up to rehabilitate criminals. America is all for punishment of lawbreakers, especially when they are low income, black and brown. David on Twitter writes, as a foster parent, I think about this often. Some kids enter the system when a parent goes to jail. The foster system is supposed to care for kids until their parents can care for them again. Having incarceration on your record can make it hard to find a job and rebuild a home. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Pete in Redford. Pete, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah. hi. Thanks a lot for having me on. Mm -hmm. uh, big fan of Just Leadership and, and Ron. Uh, um, I uh, have a son who's 14 years into a 20-year minimum, um, went in at 18, I deal a lot with families on the outside as an advocate. And uh, one thing I'd like to mention as part of this conversation is uh, how difficult um, MDOC specifically makes it uh, to uh, keep uh, and maintain connections with good people on the outside. Mm -hmm. um, they say that uh, the support system on the outside is vital to uh, successful uh, reintegration yet uh, they give it no more than lift service as far as where they place folks uh, compared to the support systems when they're in prison. They're spread out all over with no, absolutely no um, uh, thought to where their support systems are for visits. Um, the difficulty in uh, uh, guys getting uh, um, some types of, of um, offenses inside, and I'm talking about minor tickets, yet they can take away visits for that, sometimes permanently, when it has nothing to do with a visit. In other words, it's absolutely counterproductive. Uh, there's so, so much to talk about, but um, um, trying to maintain this contact on the outside or rebuilding relationships that were shattered, it, it's, that, to me, should be primary while they're inside. And I'd like to know what Ron has to say about that, although I have a feeling I know what he does. Yeah, no, I, I want to hear from him, too. But before we get back to him, Pete, I have a couple of questions. One... Um, you said that your son is 14 years into a 20-year minimum sentence. I, I would love for you to tell us what he was convicted of that 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 got. I mean, that's a big sentence, um, but but it's yeah, not it unusual is. in Michigan, and that's one of the things is no. the the amount of years that that they sentence people to here once they do send you to prison is is pretty steep, and it's hard to get out. Uh, but but talk it, a little about that. Go ahead, Pete. Sure, it is absolutely, and and that's a that's a, that's another uh, big uh, bugaboo in this whole system is the uh, is the what I call the over sentencing uh, the fact that uh, folks will hear a, a news story and then hear a sentence and say, well, that sounds good, and move on with their lives without any contemplation of what that time really means. Uh, my son is in uh, for uh, second degree murder, although he physically didn't do anything. Um, it's really, uh, as, as a lot of times is, is a complicated case, but, uh, he was, he, uh, he was there when somebody else committed. Exactly. A, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And he actually went to the police voluntarily to tell the full story thinking he was going to help. And the next thing you knew, he, he was, uh, he was at first, uh, charged with first degree murder, uh, facing a life without parole. 
So it's 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 odd to say, but the twenty year actually sounded like a win for us. But mm. in my opinion, he was no threat then, and he's no threat now. Mm. As with so many cases, drugs had a had a huge uh, impact on him at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, he got himself into a in a, into a situation uh, with some people that uh, that he shouldn't have been in, and um, this is where he ended up. Um, it's it's frustrating. I I don't like to dwell on that because there are folks inside who have done horrendous things, yet um, turn their lives around in relatively short order, uh, five to ten years in. You yeah. know, they've, they've, they've gotten past that. They've, they've actually grown up. Uh, there's no 18-year-old out there I, that, that is an adult, in my opinion, sure. uh, uh, fully functional. And it's very frustrating. Um, and uh, the sentencing, the over-sentencing, and the, you know, when you talk about comparing sentences, so-and-so did this and they only got that, did this, yet they're they're facing possibly, you know, it, my son's sentence is actually a 20 to 30 year. He's got a nice 10 year tail on that. Oh, my goodness. Where it makes it very difficult for folks out here like me on the outside who try to advocate through uh, helping families and legislation. Yet we're somewhat um, uh, hobbled by uh, for speaking out completely because the state still has 10 years in their pocket that they could tack on. Right. Um, right. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's it's very frustrating. And it's a fine line, Pete. That's um, it. And I just I just wish that folks would, when they hear about these news stories and the time that these folks are being sentenced for, would stop and think about what that time really means. Yeah. And yeah. and start to look at what they're doing, not what they not who they were and what they did, but who they are now and what they're doing. Yeah, Pete. I I really love that you called, um, and I'm really sorry about the circumstances that uh, that landed your son in prison in the first place, and. The amount of time that uh, that he will end up having to serve, um, Ronald. I, I want to get you to to respond to what Pete was talking about about the isolation, though, that people who are incarcerated feel, and the difficulty that you have keeping touch with the family that you left behind, with the community that you left behind, which makes it, of course, harder when you do get out to to reestablish those bonds. Absolutely. Thank you for the question, and and, and uh, Pete. I really feel for you and your family, and my, I send you my regards and my support. Um, as far as the isolation, prisons, especially all the prisons these days are built for isolation. Back in the day, you used to have a lot of access. There was anybody could come visit you prior to like 1990 or so. You anybody you need, you didn't need a visitor list. You could go visit anybody. The telephone calls, you could call anybody without having to be on a list. There were just it was open. Um, even reports could come in and interview you. But over the years, they made it much, much harder for people to come in to talk to the people inside of prison. They isolated us. I always tell people that the, the gun tires and the bar, razor wire was not to keep us in, but to keep the community and the, and the media out. Because they, they no longer allowed uh, interviews, television, radio interviews from people inside of prison. They isolated you from visiting. You had, from being anybody could come visit you, you had to have a list of only. 15 or 20 people could actually come visit. Same with telephones. Your phone list was listed to a certain list of people, I think 20 numbers in Michigan, and you could about every six months you can rotate those numbers. So it was truly isolating, and it can be debilitating because if you if you don't have very much family in the first place and then you restrict it from the ways you can see and the visits and what have you, then it, 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 it start. It, it becomes a self-internalizing process. Mm-hmm. You know, you start getting paranoid. It creates mental issues. The people inside of prison that already have borderline mental issues. So it was a really devastating process. And even for me, and I had a lot of resources on the outside to help keep connected, but I still felt 
felt isolation. You know, prison like Michigan Jackson had like 5,000 people when I was there. Mm. And I always felt strange because I was in a crowd of 5,000 people, but I felt alone all the time because it was just no, there was no real connection. There was no, no real camaraderie relationship, um, romantic relationships were next to impossible. So yeah. the yeah. isolation and the devastation is, is, is unbearable. And it's something that needs to be done because they keep keep people want to volunteer to come in and run programs. I should run a lot of programs for the men inside and the institution made it harder for volunteers to come in and run those programs. So it's just a totally intentional effort to isolate people from yeah. the community and from themselves. Yeah. Okay, we've got to get another quick break in here. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Professor Ruben Miller and Ronald Simpson Bay uh, about incarceration and life after incarceration. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number, and you can go to Facebook or Twitter to put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guests are Reuben Miller and Ronald Simpson Bay. Uh, Reuben has written a book, author, he's the author of Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. Uh, Ronald Simpson Bay runs uh, Just Leadership, an organization that advocates for inmates and is trying to decarcerate uh, our country. We're talking about incarceration and life after incarceration, how difficult it is uh, structurally, culturally, all of the things that stand in the way of people building new lives after they serve their time. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, you can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. Um, uh, Professor Miller, I, I want to have you talk about something that you wrote about in, in your book here. The problem of mass incarceration, you say, is a problem of citizenship. I, I want to have you talk just a little about what you mean by that and how do you imagine a better society for us? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. So mass incarceration is about citizenship because citizenship ultimately is about belonging. Uh, in the ways that we think about citizenship, we think typically talk about it as being a part of a of a, of, a, of a legal community. Citizenship is a legal status, but it's so much more than a legal status. Citizenship is something that we express and experience every day. You know, we, we, we experience it when we spend time with our families, when we get up and move around our homes freely, when we participate uh, in, in the civic life of the city, when we, when we, when we go to our, our places of worship or, or the places that we gather to spend time together as a community, um, because citizenship is really about belonging to a political community. And I'm not the only one who says this, you know, scholars of citizenship uh, who, who are very interested in citizenship studies say the same thing. Well, what mass incarceration does is mass incarceration severs ties uh, between people in the communities uh, from which they came. So on the one hand, there is the severed tie of incarceration itself. So that's sending someone away. Uh, and I should say that while mass incarceration disproportionately impacts black people in this country, overwhelmingly impacts black people in this country. It doesn't stop at the threshold of the black family. Mm -hmm. You can't build a machine like this and not affect everybody. One in two Americans have a loved one who's been to jail or prison. One in eight white women today has a loved one who's sitting in an American jail or prison right now. 
And those people, not just the one in eight white women, also the one in two black women, uh, and, 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 and the disproportionate number of Latinx and, and poor Asians, uh, 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 folks uh, in this country, and especially the poor. When you sit in that jail or prison, you're severed from uh, the, your family, you're severed from community, you're severed from the civic life uh, that, that, that you once took part in. You can no longer make the contribution that you made. Well, then once you come home, once you come home, you know, the, 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 the cliche is, you know, I paid my debt to society. We never allow you to pay a debt. <laughs> we never allow you to pay it. When you come home, you're severed from the labor market. You're severed from uh, civic participation. You're severed from housing. Uh, nowhere to live, nowhere to go. You're not allowed to cross state lines. Uh, you, 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 you know, all these restrictions prevent you from fully participating. Mm -hmm. All these restrictions make it so that you have nowhere where you actually belong. And, 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 so, and so when we when we think about changing uh, mass incarceration, we can't do tinkering around the edges reform. We have to think about this at a higher level, at the level of citizenship. The question for us shouldn't be um, uh, what services does someone who got out of jail or prison need? The question should be, how might I help someone who's been out of jail or prison fully participate in the society when they come home? Mm -hmm. How might we help them to fully participate as if they were like anyone else? That's the question for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to go quickly back to the phones here before we have to end the show. Chase in Detroit, you're up next. Morning. I really appreciate this conversation. I'll make my comment brief. So one of the things that sticks with me is that there are a lot of hidden costs to the carceral state. And in Detroit, um, you know, there's been interesting research on the amount of money we spend on police settlements when DPD um, is shown to have done wrongdoing, that it, it, it's in fact black taxpayers who then have to pay for the settlements of those cases. So not only are we paying for the carceral hmm. state, but we're also paying for police wrongdoing. <laughs> for so the, just something I wanted to add. To the for the mistakes. Yeah, I know, Chase, I'm glad you called and pointed that out, uh, Professor Miller. We only have about a minute left. But but again, that gets to what Chase is pointing out, gets to the structural end of this, that it is a structure that is built to just sap uh, energy and life and, of course, money uh, out of communities like the African-American community, which, again, is is disproportionately affected by all of this. That's absolutely right. And and I was thinking about um, the Detroit police settlements, you know, and what happened when the city underwent municipal bankruptcy. So not only does the money get zapped out of that community, but then when 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 the city filed bankruptcy, uh, the, 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 the black people who were disproportionately harmed by the police didn't get paid. <laughs> right. They, they, became, they became one in a long line of debtors that the, the, the disdain. Uh, uh, for people that we've decided are less than us, in this case, black people, the poor, minoritized groups, minoritized populations, is built into the legal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And it is this legal infrastructure that must change. But we can't just change it by, 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 by reforming at the fringes. We have to change uh, what Ronald Simpson Bay talks about is our hearts and our minds. We have to make an ethical commitment to ensuring that people with criminal records are made to belong. And then we think about that across system. Yeah. Think about it across system. Yeah. Professor Miller and Ronald Simpson Bay, it was really, really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. 
Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Derricka Purnell about how she became a police abolitionist and also about police reforms that are happening in the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.